You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. In 1974, Joseph Molinaire and Gordon Stockenauer are a couple of losers riding out their prison term at a work farm outside of Marquette, Michigan. Marquette is best known as a college town. It's located in the center of the northernmost part of the Upper Peninsula. Marquette sits on the southern end of Lake Superior, and if you travel south of Marquette, you'll find mile after mile of woods, with the occasional farm or homestead. Molinaire was supposed to be improved, be rehabilitated. He'd recently completed a behavior modification program through the Michigan Correctional System, and his reward for completing the program involved him being moved from prison to the work farm. Molinaire wasn't happy at Magnum Farm. The same issues that led to him ending up in prison continued to plague him. The farm was a place where prisoners resided on the honor system, passing time until they finished their sentence and could be released back to society. Sure, there was work to be done, but you were outside, working with your hands, and had a significantly better setup than the men being held at the nearby prison. Instead of being grateful for the freedom the farm afforded, Molinaire was bitter to be held at all. The slender, dark-haired, 29-year-old thought he should not have been sent up in the first place. He should be with his lady, living his life. Both Molinaire and 26-year-old Stockenauer were in prison on assault charges. To use a term that my father often employs, Molinaire was no choir boy. He had multiple arrests for assault, including arrests in 71 and another in 73. Stockenauer was serving a two- to four-year sentence for felonious assault, and Molinaire was in for 18 months for attempted felonious assault. If you listen to Stockenauer, it was all Molinaire's idea. Stockenauer had a girl and a young child waiting for him on the outside. He wanted to get through a sentence, get out, and get back to his life. He claimed there was no way he would have come up with this idea. He would never have planned an escape. Molinaire forced him into it. Molinaire countered that Stockenauer was a grown man and made his own decisions. There was no force involved. Whoever came up with the plan, did they know it was the start of a multi-state crime spree? Was violence against civilians part of the plan? A plan where they would kidnap, rob, and kill, leaving a trail of bodies in their wake? Come with me to an evening in late April, 1974, when Joseph Molinaire and Gordon Stockenauer fled the work farm they resided at and began a multi-state reign of terror that would lead to the deaths of three people. April in Marquette is not the green, joyful springtime you might imagine. Being that far north, it's still quite cold. During the day, temperatures might hit the mid-40s, and at night it can dip into the 20s. For my international friends, that's a high of 7 Celsius and a low of zero. Marquette is in a snow belt, and it is the third snowiest location in the United States. Marquette and the nearby town of Harvey, where the work farm is located, sit on the southern edge of Lake Superior, the largest of the Great Lakes. In April, you'll still see chunks of ice dotting the surface of the Big Lake. The calendar says that spring has arrived, but let's face it, it's still cold up there. 
It was 10 p.m. on Saturday, April 20th, 1974, when four men, all assigned to the work farm in the edge of the Marquette prison property, made a run for it. Joseph Molinaire, Gordon Stocknower, 26-year-old James Runstrom, and 36-year-old James Putnam. Runstrom was captured the next day in St. Ignace, about three hours or 160 miles southeast of Marquette. Putnam would enjoy his freedom a few days longer, but for Molinaire and Stocknower, their journey is just getting started. Once the men left the farm, the pair knew they needed a car. They came upon a restaurant, Wallstrom's, located on Highway 41, just south of Marquette. They took 34-year-old Charlene Bowden, or, as the newspaper at the time called her, Mrs. James Bowden, hostage and left in her vehicle. Bowden, a mother of five, rode with the men as they headed southwest toward Wisconsin. This made a plain old prison break into a federal matter, kidnapping across state lines. At some point, Molinaire and Stocknower broke into several vacation cottages and found weapons, a pair of rifles, and the ammunition to go with them. When Bowden's car began to run out of gas, the escapees and their hostage needed another vehicle fast. They forced Bowden out of the car to flag down a second vehicle. The driver, William Klingemeyer of rural Kearney, Michigan, stopped to assist her. That's when Stockenauer and Molinaire appeared with shotguns, forcing their way into his car. The group, now a foursome, continued heading south toward Oshkosh. It's dawn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, when the car stops. Klingemeyer and Bowden decide to make a run for it. On one side, there is woods, on the other, a field. They leap from the vehicle and begin running. Molinaire and Stocknower raise their weapons and fire at the pair who are headed in opposite directions. Klingenmayer makes it into the woods, safe for the moment. Joseph Molinaire points his rifle at Charlene Bowden, striking her in the back, damaging her spine and kidneys. The 34-year-old wife and mother will bleed to death before help summoned from a local farmhouse by Klingenmeyer, can arrive. Klingenmeyer suffered only minor injuries, slicing his hand on a barbed wire fence as he fled the escapees. He makes it to safety and will be able to testify against the pair when the time comes. Molinaire and Stocknower continue heading south, pausing mid-morning that Sunday in Franklin, Wisconsin, just outside Milwaukee to rob a gas station. During the robbery, they shoot and kill the 17-year-old attendant, Kenneth Kasperzik. As morning turns to afternoon, Molinaire and Stocknower continue heading south, leaving a trail of death and destruction in their wake. I need to pause here, because they're headed to Flint, Michigan. They're hoping to hide out with Molinaire's girlfriend, then perhaps flee to Canada. So why head west out of Marquette into Wisconsin? Were they seeking a circuitous route to mid-Michigan? Were they afraid of being caught at the Mackinac Bridge? Did they think they would fall off the radar? Or did they not know which country roads would lead them south to the Mackinac Bridge, the only crossing from the upper to the lower peninsula? Whatever the reason, they ended up making the long trip through Wisconsin, through part of northern Indiana, into Ohio, and finally back into Michigan. Now, the trip from Milwaukee to Detroit is a six- or seven-hour drive. It's 380 miles, or 610 kilometers. 
At some point, the pair must have stopped to rest, because their whereabouts for the next 15 hours are a mystery. It's after midnight on Monday, April 22nd, when 23-year-old Troy Police Officer Martin Chivas pulls his cruiser into the Texaco station on Rochester Road. The station should be closed, but he sees lights inside and decides to investigate. Chivas is just exiting his vehicle when he's shot, cut down by Molinaire and Stockenauer. When another Troy police officer arrives moments later, there is no sign of the pair, only the burglarized Texaco station and young officer Chivas, who is mortally wounded. While a manhunt is shaping up in Troy, Molinaire and Stockenauer stop at the Denny's restaurant near 12 Mile and Interstate 75, just three miles south of the shooting in Madison Heights. In the parking lot of Denny's, they attempt to force their way into the vehicle of 31-year-old Winona Brown. Brown struggled with them as patrons inside the restaurant look on. Another patron intervenes, and the pair flee the area. They're next seen in Warren, a few miles east of the restaurant, and they enter the home of Joseph Inotomi, coming face-to-face with Inotomi's 20-year-old son, Rick. Faced with armed gunmen in his home, Rick keeps his cool, offering to help the pair escape in one of their vehicles. Rick even offers to lead them back to the freeway so they can continue their travels. The pair tell him they're trying to get to Flint. They follow Rick's vehicle back to the freeway entrance, and once they're gone, Rick places a call to police, reporting the incident. This break-in is quickly connected to the shooting of Officer Chivas at the Texaco station and Officer Scramble. Roadblocks are put in place, hoping to trap the escapees and end their murderous spree. Interstate 75 from Flint to Troy is lined with officers. They're checking cars in a search for the men. They want to stop them before anyone else gets hurt. Molinaire and Stocknauer are headed to the home of Molinaire's girlfriend, and they opt to avoid Interstate 75, using back roads to enter Flint. When they arrive at his girlfriend's home, pulling the car they stole from the Inotome family into the driveway, they find the area crawling with police. They attempt to flee on foot and hide, Molinaire under a car and Stocknauer under a tool shed, but both men are apprehended without incident. It's been 55 hours since they slipped away from the prison farm in Marquette. Two and a half days, hundreds of miles, and three innocent victims dead in their wake. After they're in custody, Troy Police Corporal Thomas Morris will tell the press that both men, quote, admitted to all the crimes they've been accused of. When Officer Chivas was gunned down, offers of assistance poured in from departments throughout Michigan and the nation. More than 30 agencies offered staffing to the city of Troy so that officers could attend the funeral in Centerline and the burial of Officer Chivas. Troy Sergeant George Reed told the press that, quote, They don't want to shun any department, but they don't need 30 cars on the road. Two corporals and two cadets from Troy volunteered to remain in the station during the funeral. According to the Daily Tribune paper, the Oakland County Sheriff provided three deputies, and Oak Park, Clawson, and Southfield sent two officers. Sterling Heights, Birmingham, and Bloomfield Township each sent one. Hundreds of officers from Michigan and nearby states are present for the funeral service and burial of Officer Chivas. Martin Chivas was survived by his parents and two brothers as well as many friends and co-workers who mourned the loss of someone so kind, so young, 
and with such a bright future. On October 21, 1974, Molinaire and Stocknauer are found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Officer Martin Chivas. Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Robert Webster stated, quote, The murder of a defenseless and surprised police officer is a crime for which there is no adequate remedy involved. Webster handed down a mandatory life sentence and implored future governors of Michigan not to commute that sentence. Molinaire and Stocknauer vowed to appeal. While they'd been given a life sentence for the murder of Officer Chivas, Molinaire and Stocknauer still face kidnapping charges in Michigan for Charlene Bowden and 21-year-old William Klingenmeyer and in Wisconsin for the murder of Bowden as she tried to escape, and the robbery murder of 17-year-old gas station attendant Kenneth Kaspersik in Franklin, Wisconsin. The mountain of charges Molinaire and Stocknauer face make it unlikely the pair will ever walk free again. Molinaire tried again to escape the consequences of his behavior. Both he and Stocknauer appealed their mandatory life sentences, an appeal for which was unsuccessful, but... Unwilling to accept his fate, Molinaire took another approach. In episodes 48 and 49, we discussed John Norman Collins, the man thought to be responsible for the murders of half a dozen women in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area between 1968 and 1970. Once Collins was convicted for the murder of Karen Sue Bynaman, he was sent to Marquette to serve out his sentence. While incarcerated there, Collins was part of a plot among inmates to tunnel out of the facility. The escape attempt was uncovered in 1979, and one of Collins' co-conspirators in this plot was Joseph Molinaire. In 2013, Joseph Molinaire died in prison at the age of 71. Gordon Stocknauer marked his 70th birthday in March 2018 at the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility near Muskegon on the west side of the Lower Peninsula. In February of 2017, State Representative Martin Hauerlach of District 41, which serves residents in Troy and Clausen, introduced legislation to rename a portion of Interstate 75 at the Rochester Road exit the Officer Martin Marty Chivas Memorial Highway. The bill passed, and Public Act 53 went into effect on June 4, 2018. Representative Hauerlach tells me that the Troy Police and Fire Benevolent Association will pay for the sign and its installation on Interstate 75. The Texaco station that Chivas was checking out when he was shot is no more. If you are familiar with the area, it was located on Rochester Road, south of Big Beaver Road, on the west side of the street, just north of the freeway and next to the entrance of an apartment complex. When the memorial sign is installed, it will literally be yards from where Officer Chivas met his cruel and unnecessary fate. Wanting to know more about Officer Chivas and the night in question, I reached out to Dane Slater. Not only is he the mayor of the city of Troy and served on the Troy City Council since 2009, he was working at the Troy Police Department in 1974 alongside Officer Chivas. For the listeners, can you please introduce yourself? Well, my name is Dane, D-A-N-E, Slater, S-L-A-T-E-R. I'm currently uh, the mayor of the city of Troy in Michigan. And uh, I was with the Troy Police Department for uh, about 35 years. And I retired in 
eight as a captain with the Troy Police Department. And in 1974, what was your involvement with the Troy PD? I was a rookie police officer. I hired on to the department in January of 1974. I was a rookie. Did you work with Officer Chavez? I did uh, briefly. After I got out of the academy, um, he actually was one of the few officers that I I knew because he was a roommate with uh, an officer that I went to the academy with. So I got to know him through my friend. You know, obviously, people always speak well of those that have passed on. But the the comments that I read on a memorial page for him, it sounds like he was just a nice, you know, he's a nice guy. He was a good guy. He was a military veteran, police officer. But it also sounds like he was nice. He was considerate and wanted to do a good job. Absolutely. I um, I know when I met him, he was some somebody that I wanted to look up to, and um, although he wasn't on the department very long himself, we were a relatively young police department, and, you know, he was someone that embraced the new officers, and I thought that that was a great character, that somebody would would do that, and he embraced uh, me and took me in, and I I know he would have been a great mentor, somebody for for a young officer to, to be mentored by. He's a great guy. Again, from what I read online, it, it just sounded like he was just a good person and had quite a sense of humor, again, from from the stories that I read about him, that he was you know, just a nice guy. The night in question, he had stopped at the Texaco station because there was a report of a burglary or he saw something that he thought was suspicious, so he stopped? Yes, uh, I think he was technically investigating a suspicious person at the gas station, uh, you know, it was late at night. The station was closed, so anyone that you would see inside a gas station at that time of night would be a suspicious person. You know, until you investigated it, you wouldn't know if it was a burglary or not, but um, my understanding is he was investigating a suspicious persons uh, that were inside the closed gas station. And I don't recall the gas station. I think it was gone before... I was in the area, but if I interpreted what I read correctly, this wasn't a big, fancy station like you see now with a mini-mart. It was more of a a small building and a couple of pumps out front. It wasn't like a super gas station. It was just a little fueling station. Right. I mean, back in the early 70s, you know, you still pumped your own gas, and uh, they were your typical gas station where uh, you had a few pumps outside, and it was a small area that uh, you serviced uh, vehicles and, you know, a small office for the attendant. Uh, Pretty typical, what you might see in a museum today. Typical Texaco gas station, very small. Um, Right off the freeway, you know, very convenient. Uh, There was an exit from I-75 onto Rochester Road. And so when you got off of the freeway, the gas station was kind of facing right at you when you got off the freeway. Okay, and this area now, when you talk about Big Beaver and Rochester Road, it's very built up. There's a big shopping plaza. There's actually several shopping plazas. There's restaurants. There's homes. But in 1974, this was a much quieter area. Yes. um, You know, back in 1974, I would consider Troy, 
you know, probably a good 80% rural uh, city. We did have a mall at uh, about two miles from this location, maybe not quite two miles. Um, and there was one one concrete road in, in the whole city. Everything else was a two-lane blacktop road that had big ditches on both sides and uh, cornfields uh, to the northern part. Uh, we had horses and pretty rural um, the area at I-75 in Rochester was just starting to grow. You know, the freeway uh, kind of separates Troy. Where there's an exit onto I-75, those areas seem to grow faster in the area where there was an exit, and then we just spread from there. Okay. And this location is just, what, a mile and a half, mile and a quarter east of the police station? Yeah, you know, about a mile and a quarter, maybe a mile and a half at the most, yeah. Okay. And he radioed in that he was responding to the call and someone else came and discovered that he had been shot. Is that correct? Right. That's right. Yep. Okay. And he was transported to Troy Beaumont where he was pronounced? Correct. One of the things that I read in the newspaper that I found rather touching is that many departments volunteered to patrol in Troy so that the officers could attend his services. Yeah, it's something that I remember, you know, very, very well. You know, there are things that that happen in your life that um, obviously stick out. It, it was, you know, I'd, I'd been a police officer for about three and a half months maybe, and unfortunately um, I had to go to a police funeral, so it was my first experience going to a police funeral. Unfortunately, it was someone that I knew and and had worked with for a short period, but I saw the the camaraderie has grown. I saw the the friendships. The um, you know it's like a fraternity, and we each look out for each other. And other departments looked out for us when we needed them to help us. The sheriff's department uh, help patrol. Other cities that were close by helped us so that we could go to a, a funeral for our friend. Yeah, I thought that was very special and, and said a lot about the the agencies and the respect between the agencies. Um, and he was the first line-of-duty death for Troy Police. Is that correct? Well, we had an officer, um, Smetana, that was killed in a car crash uh, responding to a call, but this was the first officer that was was killed uh, by, you know, a suspect, yes. So this was very new for the department. Yeah, I, you know, we were we were a small department, a growing department, a growing city. I think you would probably say it was a rude awakening for officers on the department that maybe, you know, you wouldn't think something like this would happen in our city at that time. Uh, for me, it was kind of a jolt, you know, as a new officer that, um, you know, kind of a jolt of reality. Absolutely. uh, You know, something that has has an effect on you for the rest of your life. Yeah, I I can imagine. And it sounds like, and again, I'm just going off what I've read in the papers, the Daily Tribune did a great job covering his funeral and the services, but it sounds like the leadership at the department in Troy really stepped up and tried to, to do the right thing for him and his brothers and his parents and for his fellow officers. Right. Uh, you know, I 
I can't say anything but good about, you know, how the department reacted. And, and quite honestly, the department has reacted since 1974 to honor Officer Chavez every year at our police memorial. We as an organization and as a police department uh, never forget, and we honor him every year along with um, Officer Smetana and, and others. But, you know, we we have a tree in his honor. We uh, are currently getting ready to unveil a memorial for, for um, officers. I think that's a good thing about our department is that we never forget, and we honor him every year, although we think about him all the time, too. Of course. And I saw Troy is represented by Martin Hauerlach, who's your state representative. And I spoke with him briefly, and he had introduced legislation last year to rename that segment of Interstate 75 at Rochester Road in memory of Officer Chivas. Correct. I had the privilege of going up to Lansing and testifying in front of the the committee at the request of Representative Hauerlech, along with the Chief of Police, uh, Gary Mayer. You know, that was um, something that I'm glad that I did. I feel good about it, and I appreciate that Representative Hauerlech introduced that, and pretty soon we're going to have Officer Martin, Marty Chevis Memorial Highway in our city. Yeah, it sounds like that's going to happen hopefully this summer. That's my understanding, yep. Okay, and many of my listeners uh, live in the Detroit area or return to the Detroit area to visit family, so they will, if they're traveling through Troy on Interstate 75, they will see that sign and know the story behind it, because I think a lot of times we see these signs that are in memory of or in honor of, and we don't recognize that there's a person behind it, and that that person was respected and that they're missed. Yeah, if if they pass by and they see the sign, if... um they could just uh, say a short prayer for him and um, know that you know he gave his life uh, to make our community better. You know that's the ultimate sacrifice that a police officer can do is uh, protect his community and um, be there when he's needed. And unfortunately, sometimes um, things like this happen. And unfortunately, is correct. It should not have happened. It was a, a terrible situation. I did see that the. People responsible, one of them remains in prison, and the other one passed away in prison a few years ago, which is fitting. Yes. Uh, quite honestly, I you know, I think that they um, should have suffered differently for having done this, but that's my own opinion. But anyways, you know, and not only does it, you know, we lost, you know, Marty Chavez, but it has an effect on his family. They're never the same. It has an effect on the, on the immediate officer that responded and found, you know, Marty and other officers that were much closer to him than I was. And, you know, just something like this has a has a, an effect on just more than one person. And I think we should never forget that. Well, and here we are 40-some years later, and we're still talking about it, and we're still remembering and honoring him. Right. And I think that's pretty special. I do, too. And I, I know we always will. At least Absolutely. the Troy Police Department will. You know, and his friends and family and those that he touched um, because he was a special person. You know, all the things that you read about him, you know, are true. But unless you really knew him, you know, you really, you can read about it, but he was, um, he was a, you know, just a good guy. A good he guy. certainly sounds like it. And I hope that 
in doing this episode, other people will recognize that as well and, and keep him in their thoughts, especially this summer when everybody's out and traveling and, and passing through that area. I know that I will not look at that section of Troy the same way ever again. True. And, uh, you know, I think um, I think that's okay. I think that, um, you know, things happen. Uh, sometimes they happen for a reason, and these two killers were apprehended shortly after that, which is good. They didn't kill anybody else, and they um, they were put back where they belong. And yeah. uh, I'm glad that nobody else had to go through this. Uh, I know he killed two other uh, people before. Yeah. He killed Marty, and, um, you know, it's unfortunate that they even got out to, to do that. It uh, shouldn't have happened. They did a lot of damage in a very short amount of time, and it should not have happened. Yeah, I... Um, I refer to people uh, like this, you know, as bad seeds. You know, they're just bad seeds, and they need to be away from um, good people. Yeah. And um, it's unfortunate that they got back out. You know, not only did we lose three three good people because of them, but everybody, all the people that were affected by what they did. I can't stop thinking about that also. Yeah, and I understand I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today and, and share your perspective and, and help us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we finally were able to connect. Uh, I know we playing tag for a bit, but it was Not a problem. Uh, nice to sit and talk to you. You, you did you. a great job, and I, I appreciate the way that you, um, you did the interview. Well, thank you. If you are in the Detroit area, expect the freeway designation sign to be installed this summer. If you see the sign, or if you are passing through Troy, spare a thought for a young, hard-working patrolman who met a tragic and unnecessary end while serving his community. Rest in peace, Officer Chevis. The Already Gone podcast will be on hiatus for the rest of July. Watch for a new episode on Wednesday, August 1st, 2018. If you are looking for something else to listen to this month, please check out a new project I'm working on with Mike Morford, the true crime guy and host of the Criminology Podcast. Check out Crime Sphere, a new bi-weekly show focused on what's happening in true crime media. On our first episode, we talk about the 13-part Netflix documentary, The Staircase, as well as breaking crime news out of California and New Jersey, plus DNA technology updates. What does GEDmatch mean for old, unresolved cases with a DNA profile available? I'll include a link to CrimeSphere in the show notes. Finally, stay tuned after the credits for a promo from our friends at the Targeted Podcast. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please, be safe.
I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We'll investigate one case of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. Join us as we spotlight the death of four-year-old Militia Gibson from her stepfather's abuse, delve into her family situation, break down the trial of her parents, and examine how her murder in 1976 led to changes in social service departments around the United States. Is there something we can learn about family violence through examining her murder? I think there is. She wasn't the only one in the house who was being abused. <laughs>